This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm delighted to talk again to Dr. Abdullah Swedi. You are most welcome, sir. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you very much for having me and here. You're, and you're in Medina, I understand. Yes, I'm in Medina, alhamdulillah. Fantastic. Good stuff. I'm in London. Um, so for those who don't recall, uh, last time uh, Dr. Blood was a guest, uh, he is a Swedish convert to Islam who holds a PhD in Islamic theology and is a specialist in topics related to atheism. He has been teaching uh, in Al Masjid and Nabawi and the Islamic University in Medina and has been active in teaching Islam in Sweden for over 15 years. Dr. Abdullah um, has kindly agreed to give us a talk uh, today about the occult and Western esotericism in the light of Islam. Now, I admit that this, I admit to knowing very little uh, about this subject, so I'm particularly looking forward uh, to learning about it from an Islamic perspective. So, over to you, sir. Thank you very much. Uh... I have a presentation with me. Let's just see how well I. How... Okay. Yes, like that. Yeah. Uh, so, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wa salatu wa salam ala ashafil anbiya wa mursaleen. Nabiya Muhammad wa la alihi wa sahbihi ajma'ina ma'ba'd. The topic that I'm going to talk about today is Western esotericism and occultism in the light of Islam. And uh, the purpose of this presentation. Uh, uh, is to give uh, an introduction to the subject, like uh, you mentioned, Paul. But many people they, they don't know about the subject, but it's uh, like you will see, it's a very important subject when it comes to uh, understanding Western thought, understanding Western uh, culture, because uh, it's very influential, and it's also very important to show another side of the West. And I will speak about that later because uh, this is a very uh, it's very influential in the West uh, generally, and uh, many people don't speak about it. So the West usually mm. presents itself as very modern, rational, scientific, materialistic, and so on. But this is another side of the West, and it's very influential and it's very important. So uh, I will speak about that, and I will also speak about uh, how we can learn more about the subject, the academic research on the subject, and then I will give an explanation of the Islamic position of different things that are common in Western esotericism and occultism. Uh, first of all, uh, this, uh, uh, this word that they're using, uh, it's a new uh, it's not uh, it's not been used so, for such a long time it's called western esotericism so it uh, it's only about the the traditions the esoteric traditions in in the west uh, in europe and in usa and it excludes uh, esoteric traditions in other parts of the world like esoteric traditions in the islamic world or uh, in hinduism and buddhism and so on so this is uh, specifically about the west Esotericism, uh, it's a Greek word from 
esotericos, uh, it means the inner circle. So you say esoteric, it's something inner, and exoteric, it's something outer. So when you speak about an esoteric meaning of uh, the text, you speak about the deeper, the hidden meaning of a text, and you speak about the exoteric meaning, it's something outer. So esoteric is something inner, and it's usually secretive, and uh, and it's uh, hidden from most people, and so on. So, uh, how do the scholars define Western uh, esotericism? This is one of the uh, longer definitions that I mentioned. Uh, Western esotericism is used as an umbrella term for a wide variety of historical traditions that were traditionally neglected in academic research. So, uh, it's an umbrella term used by uh, scholars and researchers. So you don't will not find people that say that they are Western esotericists. So this is not a uh, term used by these people themselves. It's a term used by scholars and researchers uh, who have been studying this subject. And it has traditionally been neglected in academic research. So uh, if you go back to scholarship, uh, before the uh, mid uh, 20th century, you will not see that scholars have specific, uh, specified uh, or sp spoke about this uh, subject uh, specifically in academic research or in books or articles and so on. But it started on uh, in the in the late 60s and the 70s, and it really started to be famous in the English-speaking world in the 90s and now in the 21st century. So it's something that is uh, very new. But the subject that they are studying is something old. Mm. Uh, it includes uh, Gnostic, uh, old, old Gnosticism, uh, Hermetic ideas, uh, and other uh, theor theo theological currents in late antiquity, and also the uh, occult sciences like astrology, uh, magic, and so on, and also Jewish and Christian Kabbalah, theosophy. Rosicrucianism, Illuminism, Occultism, Spiritualism, and all of these other uh, subjects that usually, uh, and uh, today, uh, New Age movement and New Paganism and uh, these other uh, currents that we can see now that are quite influential in Western culture. I just so, want to say, so, you mentioned the, the theurgical currents in late antiquity. Uh, I've just seen on the dictionary there. Uh, uh, theurgy, uh, I think it's pronounced, is uh, the operation or effect of a supernatural or divine agency in human affairs. It's one definition, or a system of white magic practiced by the early Neoplatonists. Um, yes, I was speaking on the later, yeah, yeah, theurgy, yeah. So uh, to summarize, it's an umbrella term used by uh, used by scholars to that they try to find something that can describe all of these things together. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Uh, so, uh, in the end of the day, you will not find that people uh, in the late antiquity used to speak about themselves as uh, esoteric, Western esoterics or that uh, occult people, or New Age people describe themselves as that uh, today. But this is a term used by, by scholars. Uh, occultism, uh, the definition is uh, occult theory or practice, belief in or study of the action or influence of supernatural or supernormal powers. So all the kind of things where people try to connect with supernatural uh, powers, usually the jinn, uh, like uh, seher, magic, and uh, divination, and sorcery, and... Uh, even astrology and other things. Uh, these are all things that are under the umbrella term of occultism. Even occultism is a new word, but uh, uh, it hasn't been used uh, for us, uh, such a long time, but nowadays it's used in the academia. Uh, so what is esotericism? If we can see the two main currents in uh, the history of uh, Western thought, we have the Greek rationality or Greek philosophy, and we have dogmatic belief, Christianity. And esotericism is somewhere in between those. So Greek rationality is based on things that can be verifiable, that you can verify it. And like modern science today is based on uh, this, uh, these principles that if you want to speak about something spe specific, you have to... Uh, verify what you can speak about. Of course, there were different Greek uh, philosophers and they were speaking about different subjects and so on, but this is uh, the main thing that you have to uh, verify what you're speaking about and it's not just dogmatic belief. You can, you, you have to criticize everything, you have to try to find the, the, the conclusion based on rational thinking. Mm. Another thing is dogmatic belief and of course, uh, religion like Islam is based on uh, rational uh, rational arguments for the existence of God and that he's the only one worthy of worship and uh, the science of prophethood and so on. But in religions, there are th some things that are based on dogmatic belief that you just have to believe in them based on what uh, the messengers uh, and the prophets have said. So, uh, like, go to some of the, the description of paradise and hellfire and so on. Uh, we believe in it just because uh, the Prophet ﷺ told us about it and just because it's mentioned in the Qur'an and Allah has revealed it. So it's not something that can be verified by others uh, trying to look it up through scientific methods and so on. So you have Greek rationality and you have dogmatic belief and esotericism is not part of the philosophical tradition, the Greek philosophical tradition, even though they take some things from Plato. And it's not part of the religious uh, dogmatic belief. It's somewhere in between. And it's usually based on experience and not on uh, authoritative scripture nor on uh, 
nor on uh, like rational arguments. So it's things that you have to experience yourself. And it's things that transform you as a human being when you, uh, when you uh, experience them. And it's usually based on secrecy too. Mm. So uh, esotericism is usually spread in secret societies or in uh, smaller groups and you get initiated to the group by experiencing some specific things through rituals mm. and so on. Mm. So in this way, esotericism is not a part of the Greek rational, uh, uh, the, 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 the philosophical tradition, nor the Christian or Ju Judaic uh, tradition. Yeah. Uh, anything, do you have any question about these things and so on? No, not so far. Um, very interesting indeed. Uh, I like the contrast between those three particular uh, groupings as you describe them. Very yeah. interesting. This is something mentioned. Uh, I studied a course in the Swedish University. A scholar, uh, his oh. name is Henrik Bogdan, and he's one of uh, the most famous scholars about Western uh, esotericism. And he mm. mentioned this, uh, this three, uh, like the, the, the three different systems that they have in Western culture. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, and also uh, esotericism is called rejected knowledge. Rejected knowledge because mm. the things that you uh, it has been rejected by uh, the church, it has been rejected by other philosophers, and it's been rejected by modern science, and it has also been rejected by the academy itself. It hasn't been studied. So uh, it has been rejected in many ways, even though it has been very influential amongst different thinkers and different uh, societies and uh, even politicians and people that have a lot of influence in, in culture and so on. But uh, it's not something that you speak about. It's not something that the West usually uh, show about themselves. Like usually when they try to portray themselves, they portray themselves in one way. But you can see at the same time, some of the greatest Western thinkers, they have been dealing with these things in private or in different secret societies and so on. So this is one of the interesting things that I... Uh, I think uh, really has to come out and we have to speak about is that we have this uh, front side of the West or the, this, the, the way that they try to present themselves. And at the same time, you can see many of the thinkers and politicians and other influential people, they have had, at the same time, they have been, uh, been indulged in these esoteric uh, societies or uh, uh, different uh, occult things and so on. So I mean, th yeah. this is particularly interesting what you're saying here. You say that Western esotericism shows another side of the West that is not usually presented, um, uh, and even though it's pretty widespread, you say, and well, hopefully you're going to be showing us uh, examples uh, widespread amongst scholars and thinkers in Western culture. And I can't have a reminder because I, I don't really know anything about this subject. But for my own. A little bit of reading is, is someone called Isaac Newton, the great uh, English scientist, discoverer of, of gravity and optics and so on. Um, his secret passion, and he was passionate not because he was involved in the occult, but because he had to keep his religious interests secret because he was technically a heretic. He did not believe Jesus was God. He, he understood that uh, uh, some of the early Christian manuscripts had been corrupted, a Trinity verse had been added and so on. So he is all very esoteric, but it wasn't esoteric because the subject was somehow occult-like. It was hidden because 
if he had been exposed, he would have at the very least lost his job at Cambridge. At very worst, he'd have been ex uh, executed. But his public persona was very rational, scientific, based on, on rationality, this Greek attitude, you call it. So there's a similarity there with Newton, even though it's not quite what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, he, he wrote many books about the, the, like he had occult studies and he was interested oh, right. in in Rosicrucianism and so on. Well, I, didn't know that. I didn't know that, actually. So you, you taught me something there. That's interesting. Yeah, okay. yeah. You, you just write about Newton and uh, occult studies, and you will see really? that, that he was well, interested. Well, in that case, he's probably a very, one of the most famous examples in England. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, Western esotericism, a very short history. I was speaking about the late uh, antiquity, uh, Middle Ages, uh, Renaissance, uh, Enlightenment, and the 19th and the 20th century, inshallah. Mm. First of all, uh, Western esotericism during late antiquity. When scholars mention uh, Western esotericism, they said that it really started during the Hellenistic culture. Uh, the Hellenistic culture was a, like a mixed culture between mm. Greek philosophy and different indigenous uh, religious traditions, especially from Egypt, but also from Persia and so on. So the Greek philosophical tradition was mixed together with these religious traditions, especially Platonism. So Platonism was transformed during the Hellenistic era uh, into a religious worldview, and it focused on attainment of salvational gnosis. So they took the, some of the Platonic uh, ideas that he had, and they made it to religious, uh, religious world, uh, worldview, and this is something that we can see in uh, hermetism and also in Gnosticism, that they took some of the ideas from Plato and uh, they mixed them with other things from uh, old uh, Egyptian religion and other religious traditions. So one of the uh, famous traditions uh, was hermetism, and it was attributed to someone called Hermes Trismegistus. Uh, he was probably it was just a legendary person, but uh, there are many books ascribed to him, especially a book that is called Corpus Hermeticum uh, in the second or third uh, century CE. So uh, you can see that his tradition has been mentioned and has been revived, and you can see that until today, many of the secret societies or the esoteric societies they take things from a Hermes Tris. Megitis, or they ascribe things to him. And uh, when Christianity started, there, there were some Christian sects, uh, the Gnostics, that were declared as heretics by the church fathers, and many of their manuscripts were found in Nag Hammadi. And when they found their, uh, well, their different books and so on, they could uh, get an insight to the world of the Gnostic the Gnostics in, in the second, third century, and so on. And they were also part of the uh, Western esoteric tradition uh, when they tried to find salvation through Gnosis. They, they, found, they, they said that they were entrapped in a dark world, and this was something that comes from inside of you uh, uh, to, to find the light inside of you through Gnosis, through 
some kind of sacred knowledge. Probably you know more about uh, Gnosticism. No, it's just the word Gnostic uh, in English comes from the Greek word, uh, Gnost, uh, we have the Greek equivalent, meaning knowledge. That's what the word means. Yeah. literally means knowledge, uh, the word Gnostic. Uh, uh, and so it's this secret knowledge that you uh, attain and that's your way to salvation in some way. Yeah. You can also see that many Gnostic elements uh, can be found in, in different esoteric groups uh, throughout yeah. the Renaissance and, uh, and later days and so on. And then you had the Neoplatonists uh, that practice uh, theology, uh, divine magic, when they are yeah. trying to yeah. invoke the de deities to find some kind of unity with them. Uh, so this is another form that had the, the, this kind of magic and they had uh, ritual magic. So there are, there are different kinds of magic, but this is one form of magic that they had and that they practi uh, practiced. And they were also part of uh, the Western esoteric uh, tradition. So you can see that many later esoterics, they go back to the Neoplatonist tradition. Uh, like I say, it's just a very short presentation to go through to get some kind of understanding of, uh, of Western esotericism. Hmm. Uh, during the Middle Ages, uh, the esoteric traditions, especially like uh, Neoplatonism, Agnosticism, were pushed back by the church because uh, uh, the, the church fathers were uh, uh, very polemical when it, came to, uh, when it came to Neoplatonism and when it came to Agnosticism and so on. But many of the books... Uh, from the Hellenistic era were kept in the Islamic world and translated to to Arabic. So it's famous that many of the word, uh, many many of the philosophical books were translated to to Arabic uh, from Greek, but also many esoteric books were translated. So uh, magic, astrology, and all of these occult sciences were translated to Arabic and kept in Arabic, and then it was translated to Latin uh, uh, during the, the later parts of, uh, of the Middle Ages. And one of the traditions that grew up during the uh, Middle Ages was Kabbalah. And Kabbalah yeah. uh, is uh, part of the Jew Jewish uh, esoteric tradition. Uh, they themselves, they claim that uh, it's much older than that, but scholars, they usually say that it started uh, in, in Spain during the 12th century. Um, but Kabbalah was like, um uh, an intermediate between the esoteric tradition that was translated in the islamic world to come to uh europe after that so kabbalists jewish kabbalists they came uh, when uh, when the christians took over uh spain and also when they took over uh they they, they moved to to italy and so on they brought with them this whole esoteric tradition that has been mixed with all, uh, old thoughts from the Hellenistic era with some Jewish theology and so on. So the Jews, the Kabbalistic Jews, they were the ones that brought the esoteric tradition to the West after it has uh, it had been uh, repressed during the Middle Ages. Mm. And many books were translated from Arabic to Latin after the fall of Toledo in, in Spain, uh, 1085. So... Uh, many of the, the philosophical works and scientific works and so on, but also some of the esoteric books were translated to Latin during uh, that time. Uh, another organization that was very uh, influential when it comes to uh, the esoteric tradition were the Knights 
Templar. Uh, they were uh, they were very influential during the Crusades, and they they like uh, ruled the banking system that they had during those days uh, for about two hundred years, and they were fighting over there in in, uh, in Palestine. But when they came back uh, after they they failed in the Crusades, they were repressed by King Philip the Fourth in thirteen oh seven, and. Part of the accusations that were uh, they were accused of was that they were indulged in different esoteric and occult uh, practices when they were over there in uh, in Jerusalem and were over there in the Muslim world and so on. That's they were right. accused of different different things, but these are some of the things. And you can see they got, I think they got into trouble with the the, the Inquisition uh, uh, over their alleged uh, activities. There it was probably one of the excuses or reasons to to uh, attack them or even suppress them later on. Yeah. Uh, their alleged yeah. so it was based on political uh, yeah. political agendas and so on. But the accusation that was raised against them was that they were indulged in occult and esoteric practices. And you can uh, see that many of the uh, esoteric societies uh, or the secret societies, they uh, they use different symbols of the Knight, uh, Knights Templar. So you can see uh, like in Freemasonry that many different symbols uh, from the Knights Templar or even like they have some grades that are based on the Knights Templar. So, and you can even find that some historic uh, uh, some people who write history of the Freemasons themselves, they say that the Freemason came from the Knights Templar, even though other historians, they say that this is not historical. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's like a very big gap between that time and so on. It's, it's very hard to, to know history, but we can see that these societies, they take many of the symbols and other things from the Knights Templar. So, there is some kind of link there, even though it's uh, only in their imagination. You see, like uh, the Freemasons of Sweden, their symbol is the same cross, the, the red cross, that is uh, uh, the red cross of the Knights Templar. This is their symbol that they have on their buildings and so on. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah you can even see like pictures of them. Uh, they're dressing up when they're going to, to their rituals and so on. They're dressing up as knight. Templars like that, wearing the suits and so on. So wow. they are ascribing themselves to the Knights Templar. Is it really this uh, this connection? Can I go back to them? That that's another thing. It's very hard to know, but mm. it's in their imagination. Of, uh, yes. Well, but what I like is number two. There, you put the the Carbola is thought to have started in Spain during the 12th century. Of course, Spain didn't exist. And we're talking about Islamic Spain. This is this is during the time of Islam. And and the the the, uh, the main text of the Kabbalah is, is still very popular. Today. The Zohar, Z O H A R, is the main source book of the, the Kabbalah, and that was produced in Islamic Spain by Jews. And you know, some have said it's heavily influenced by Sufism, actually. So there might indirectly be an Islamic influence on uh, Jewish mysticism in a text which is the still the central text of Jewish mystical tradition today. It's very popular in America and, and elsewhere. So the connection with Islam and Jewish mysticism are, are there in Muslim Spain in the 12th century. Definitely, because uh, the Muslims were the one that translated these books. And you can see that was like with all of the books that was translated from, from the Hellenistic era, 
uh, books of science and books of philosophy and so on. Usually Muslims, when they translate, they added other things to them. So do you have like uh, philosophical books that were translated uh, from, from uh, Aristotle and uh, from Plato and so on. And then you can see that some Muslim philosophers, they would like adding things, adding uh, explanations and so on to, to these books. Yeah. And the same things with science and they developed the science and the same thing when it comes to the esoteric tradition that they developed it in, in, in different ways. So uh, there is probably some kind of uh, influence there. Yeah. Uh, then uh, during the Renaissance, uh, the Renaissance thinkers, they admired Roman culture uh, and also Platonism. Uh, you can see that many of the uh, Christian thinkers, they used to admire uh, Aristotle uh, uh, during the Middle Ages and so on. But now they went to admire Platonism and took mm -hmm. some of the ideas of Plato. Uh, and Hermetic and Neoplatonist thoughts were spread. Uh, the, the books of uh, uh, Hermes, uh, uh, the, the Hermetic books were translated to, to Latin. They were in Greek before, they were translated. And some Christian theologians, they took Jewish Kabbalah and tried to apply it to Christian theology. So what is called Christian Kabbalah appear, appeared during the Renaissance. So there's some kind of mixture there. And this is also a very imp uh, important part of uh, the mystic and esoteric tradition in the West. Uh, Giordano Bruno, uh, he was a monk actually and he was also astronomer uh, and he aided uh, Copernicus and his ideas of uh, heliocentrism uh, but he was executed he was executed because of his indulgence in esoteric thoughts and magic yeah. but they when they speak about Bruno they usually said that he was executed because of his uh, like uh, he was a scientific hero and so on. So they tried to, uh, like, always try to uh, <clears throat> scenario that the church <clears throat> or the religion is always against science and so on. But Bruno, he was actually executed for his indulgence in, like, uh, esoteric thought and uh, magic and these kind of things. It's interesting. He he was known. Um, uh, he proposed the idea that stars were distant uh, suns surrounded by their own planets or exoplanets, and he raised the possibility that these planets might actually foster life of their own. So the idea that the, these are own solar systems or own own systems that might have alien life, and this is a very advanced uh, and and heretical idea for me medieval Christians, anyway. Uh... Another thing that happened during that was called the, the Rosicrucian Manifestos. Uh, they appear, appeared in uh, Germany uh, during 1614. And this is ascribed to a person uh, that also will come back to the, the, the Islamic tradition. A person that's a legendary person that went to, I think, uh, Cairo and Fez in, in uh, Morocco. And he, got, yeah, and he brought many of the Sufi ideas ah. uh, back and then spread them uh, in this Rosicrucian uh, idea. You can see, like, uh, I, I think that uh, Newton was himself a Rosicrucian. So oh. he was affected of these ideas. So, um, yeah, so this is like the beginning when they started societies with uh, rituals and initiations 
in, uh, in the beginning of the, the 17th centuries. They said that these manifestos were forged and so on, but this is the beginning when they start these societies, that they have these rituals, uh, and the Rosicrucian uh, movement, they mm. influenced uh, Freemasonry after that during the 18th century. Yeah, so this is during the Renaissance or Reformation. Uh, during the Enlightenment, uh, the Enlightenment is cherished as the age of reason and science, but there's another, uh, there's another side of that. You can see that many of the scholars and uh, also thinkers during that period of time, they were indulged in the occult and joined different secret societies. So you can see that uh, many of the famous uh, philosophers in, uh, in France they were Freemasons, and they were indulged in different uh, like uh, uh, esoteric things and so on. But at the same time, they were very much against religion. So they were speaking in public about uh, rationality and uh, rational thinking and so on. But at the same time, they joined these secret societies that had these different esoteric uh, rituals. Yeah. And the first Grand Lodge of Freemasonry was established in London, 1717. Uh, even though Freemasonry is older than that, but the Grand Lodge uh, was established on the, uh, that year. Even though some say that this is just symbolic, uh, that specific year, but sometime uh, during that period of time, uh, Freemasonry was established in London. It became very, very popular quickly, and it spread during the 18th century. Uh, to uh, to France and to Sweden and to uh, to the USA uh, to to America became USA after that we can see that the, the founding fathers of uh, America uh, many of them were uh, Freemasons and also uh, the Illuminati uh, was established during that time uh, this is what is called the Bavarian Illuminati and Illuminati uh, it started like 1776 by a person called Adam Weishaupt. He himself was very, uh, he liked to study uh, Jewish Kabbalah and uh, these kind of uh, occult and uh, esoteric things. Uh, but he said that his mission was to fight Christianity and to replace it with rational thinking and so on. So mm. he had one side of like... Uh, speaking about making revolutions and uh, like uh, calling to revolutions against the kings and against the church and so on. But at the same time, he had his own secret society with esoteric, different esoteric teachings and uh, uh, things like that. And the, the Bavarian Illuminati only continued for about 10 years or something like that. It, many famous people in, in Germany and other places uh, joined the, this secret society. But then uh, the leader of uh, the state of Bavaria uh, uh, abolished the whole, when he found out that they have this revolutionary ideas and so on, he abolished the whole movement and Adam Weishaupt had to flee to another state in, in, uh, of the Germanic, uh, Germanic state, states. But, but uh, 1776, of course, was, is celebrated in the U.S. as the official beginning of the United States, the Declaration of Independence. So I was wondering if that's a coincidence, is it, that that's the same year? Yeah, it's quite interesting. And he started the movement on the 1st May also, like the 1st right. May, as you know, it's like, yeah, it's a... Uh, yeah, close to the Yeah. Interesting, so. Um, 
Yeah, but the Illuminati after that, officially it, it, it was finished, but it became very, very popular in, uh, in popular culture. People are speaking about like different, usually when they speak, when people speak about conspiracy theories, they speak about the Illuminati. Yeah. And the thing that is quite interesting is that most people, they don't have an idea They just, what Illuminati is. They're just using it as a word, uh, yeah. like some people say the matrix today, like yeah. try to use some kind of word for the, uh, I, I don't really know, those who rule everything. But Illuminati was really a secret society that was established in uh, 1776. And you can read scholarly articles. Even Adam Weishaupt's books now has been translated. Some of them have been translated to, to English. Uh, they were written in, in German. Uh, but they have been translated now to English. You can see the kind of thoughts that he had. And that was spread in these secret societies in uh is the Illuminati uh, uh, the Illuminati that exists today? If it does exist, is this in direct continuity with this place, this group that was established in 1776, or is it a completely different? Yeah, yeah they say that like he uh, he recruited people from different states, from from Poland and even some people from Sweden and so on. And then the organization was disabled in his state where he was from, from Bavaria. But the people that speak about Illuminati, like in conspiracy circles and so on, they say that the organization continued to, to live on in different places. So some say they attribute like the uh, that he was involved in, in the revolu in French Revolution and he was also involved in things that happened in the USA and so on. But it's uh, many of the things that have been mentioned it's not really historical, so we don't have clear historical proof for the things that happen. And they started to use the word Illuminati for all kinds of things that are just bad and evil. Yeah. I see. Uh, but but there are the, 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 there were people that really like uh, joined the movement. You have the the, the famous. Uh, uh, the famous German author Goethe. He was a okay. member of Illuminati. Yeah, really? he was a yeah, yeah, yeah. Because interesting, he he wrote um, the Doctor Faustus. You know, the, this idea of of, of this. Uh, uh, well, I'll go into that. But the, the idea of, the, of having a pact with the devil and giving you uh, amazing powers is all very esoteric and kind of yeah. weird. And that kind well, of even, even Frankenstein, the book Frankenstein, yeah. the, like uh, Adam Weishaupt was from the the city Inglustadt in uh, in uh, uh, in Bavaria. So. She mentions Mary. She mentions that Frankenstein was made in Ingolstadt. So there is some kind of connection there too. That they say that she kind of got some of the the, the thoughts from from the Illuminati. I I, I don't really know. I haven't been oh. reading too much. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So this was what happened during the Enlightenment, and um, uh, like I said, uh, Freemasonry spread very much. It spread to to Sweden. Uh, you can see that the first kings uh, in Sweden that became Freemasons were in like 1750 or something like that. And all of the kings in Sweden until this king that we have, have all been Freemasons. Well, uh, well, well, so why are the kings of Sweden Freemasons? I mean, what, why would they become part of this movement, of this order? What would be their incentive? Do you think uh, it's it's very hard to to, to know? Uh, was one of the kings of Sweden that, that like Freemasons? They have different rights. So you have the Scottish right, and you have the Swedish right. Swedish mm -hmm. right uh, is, is spread in the Scandinavian countries, Sweden, uh, and and in Norway and Denmark and Iceland. It's the same right. And you have 
the York right, you have different rights that you have uh, in France, they have their own uh, uh, ways. So it, it can differ from place to place. Mm. But uh, the Swedish right was established, it started in the 1750s or something like that, 1730s maybe. And then the one that, uh, the, the person that established the Swedish right was uh, the king, King Charles the Thirteenth of Sweden. So he was the king, and he was the one that established the the whole uh, uh, the whole right that we have in Sweden until today, and in Denmark and, and Norway and so on. And he was very much into the esoteric and the occult and uh, mm-hmm. getting in contact with uh, with spirits and so on. So he was very much indulged in these kind of things. And when I asked the, the, the scholar Henrik Bogdan uh, in one of my classes about uh, the Swedish right, is it more esoteric or less esoteric than other rights? And he says it's more esoteric. And mm. there are no books uh, that are public of, of the Swedish Freemasonry. You have books of like the, the Scottish right in America and so on that are public. You can, uh, you can read them, you can buy them from, from uh, Amazon and so on. But there are no books that are public of Swedish Freemasonry. So it's very hard to know really what, what they're up to, what they're doing and so on. And this is what he himself said. And he's like one of the main scholars in the world. He's a professor, he's one of the main scholars in the world when it comes to uh, studying Western esotericism. But, but this must be a, a, a cause of some considerable anxiety to those non-Freemason people in Scandinavia who are aware of this secretive movement uh, of the rich, of some rich and powerful people. Because, you know, what are they up to? You know, the, the implication is there's conspiracies, there's, uh, you know, unaccountability, uh, there's agendas which are not made public and therefore not accountable to a wider political system. So this must cause anxiety, surely, politically and socially amongst other people. Yes, and I will come to that, inshallah, later. This is like what I was speaking about, the two different sides of, of the West. You have this, this yeah. open, the modern side of the West and democratic yeah. side and liberal side, yeah. and the same people that are ruling <laughs> are in these secret societies that are very, like, uh, they're not uh, genitarian, they do not allow women to come in and so on. But I will speak about that later. I think it's a very, very interesting yeah. thing when it comes to understanding the West. Uh, you can't really understand the whole West if you don't understand Western esotericism. This Indeed. is what I yeah. 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 So uh, during the 19th century, uh, there was a movement called spiritualism that attracted millions of followers, especially in uh, America and in Britain. It started with two uh, sisters that heard some sounds in their house, and they thought that they were communicating with the dead. So this was during uh, after the during the period of time after the American Civil War, many, many people died uh, during the war and they died of diseases and so on. So like almost all families in the States, they had some relatives that had been dead. So now, and people started to move in to, to bigger cities and so on. So they lost, many of them lost connections to, to churches and so on, uh, to the old churches. And this was some kind of way to find a substitute mm-hmm. of, uh, to continue with their spiritual uh, life. Uh, and one of the things, the main things the spiritualists were, were focused on was communicating with the dead. So they have special mediums that were speaking to the dead and communicating with them and so on. But uh, yeah, probably some kind of uh, jinn thing that they <laughs> had connection to. Yeah, but this was very, very popular uh, between 1840 to 1920 in yeah. USA and Britain. 
And they're very uh, popular in English, as you say, uh, uh, hugely popular uh, in, in Victorian England. And it got, got a lot of criticism, but uh, it was very, very popular. Uh, remarkable. Uh, not, not anymore. It's almost, it's almost it's not disappeared, I guess, but it certainly doesn't have that kind of central cultural significance that it did uh, in, in a few centuries ago. Uh, and uh, one of the movements that was uh, like influence of that was uh, the Theosophical Society established by uh, Helena Blavatsky in 1875. And one of the things that is interesting, uh, interesting with the Theosophical Society that Helena Blavatsky, she said him, herself that she traveled to Tibet and she traveled to India and she traveled to Egypt and so on. And many of the the thoughts that she had and many of the things that she had in the Theosophical Society were taken from Buddhism and taken from Hinduism and taken from old Egyptian religion and so on. And the Theosophical Society itself was not that big, but uh, it had huge influence on the New Age movement after that and other movements that are popular in, in the West now. So you can see that in these uh, uh, New Age movements and uh, people that are indulged in these things, they usually take some things from, from Buddhism, some things from Hinduism, some things from Taoism, uh, and so on. So they, they mix from different religious traditions, and uh, they take, they, they call it like, um, you go to a buffet, so you take what you want. So this yeah. is something that is, it's uh, very individualistic in this way, that uh, you should not have this organized religion that like the church is saying to you exactly what you should believe and so on. It's up to everyone to take what they want. So you can take some things, take the tarot card, so you take uh, some astrology things and so on. Mm. So this is part of the whole new age movement. And many of the things can be traced back to Helena Blavatsky and the Theosophical Society. Uh, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a, 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 a kind of spiritual practice which is very modern in the sense of it's very capitalistic. It's like having a supermarket of beliefs. So you choose whatever you, you fancy and what what takes you what you like. Uh, and it's very individualistic uh, and capitalistic. They sell things to you, <laughs> capitalistic, like you say. They try to like sell stones to you, or sell talismans yeah. to you. Yeah. you know, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you feel like. It's very zeitgeist, very, very Western in that sense. But it's uh, very interesting to understand this, to, to understand, like, because it's, uh, you can see, especially as Pala, uh, amongst women, uh, it's uh, it's much more, like, spread out amongst women than it is uh, amongst men. So I you can see, uh, when I was studying uh, atheism, uh, I saw, like, a YouTube channel that had been, uh, that collected all of the debates between oh. Christians and atheists. So it was about 300 debates that I wow. saw. That was many years ago. And all of the debates were between men. So yeah. men who are atheists and men who are Christians. Yeah. And then I wrote a, uh, an essay, an article, uh, when I was studying about uh, the New Age movement in the University of Sweden. And I had to read some of the materials that they have, some of the journals that they have, and uh, newspapers and so on. And the whole movement was... For women so they were speaking about okay how can you practice your spiritual life and how mm. can you be happy with your husband so it's not like with your <laughs> wife it was with your husband yeah wow. uh, you can see that yeah, many of them the practices uh, are usually like like women so you can see that uh, men uh, they they like are more attracted to, to things like uh, either like 
uh, yeah, atheism and so on. And then you can see that women, uh, they're more uh, attracted to, to these things. Hmm. Uh, one thing that's uh, interesting during the 19th century, that many socialists and feminists, they used Satan as a symbol. Wow. So uh, they were praising uh, Shaitan, uh, actually. Uh, hmm. And you can see that there's a book called uh, Marx and Satan, or Satan or Marx. Uh, and uh, the author, he, he collected different poems by Marx himself uh, that he like wrote to Shaitan uh, and praised Shaitan. Uh, and you can see the same thing with, uh, uh, what is it called? Mikhail uh, Bakuni, um, the, the anarchist leader. Uh, yeah, oh, well, the, the, the Bukharin, the Russian Bukharin. Yeah, Bukharin yeah. Yeah, the same thing with him. He had this kind of praising Shaitan and so on. And even the social democratic part in Sweden, they had their own newspaper called Lucifer. <laughs> and this is the social democratic party that has been ruling Sweden for for uh, like most of the 20th century. So they had so the social democratic party who's been ruling Sweden for the most of the 20th century uh, had a paper that was named after Satan. That's what yeah. you just. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. And they had the ten, the ten commandments of Shaitan. So it said, like, you should not have any god besides me, uh, the light bringer. So, yeah, uh, they had this tradition that was very spread out uh, among socialists during the 19th century when they used Shaitan as uh, a rebel against authority, mm -hmm. uh, against mm -hmm. God, against the king, mm -hmm. and so on. And feminist was the same thing that they say that they used the, the story of Adam and Eve, that Shaitan yeah. came to her and so on, and that the church used to uh, have this whole patriarchal structure and so on. But Shaitan was the one that tried to liberate women uh, those days. There's a Swedish scholar it's called Per Faxnell. He wrote a book. I think it's his PhD dissertation uh, about satanic feminism. Uh, uh, satanic feminism, uh, Satan, uh, the devil as the liberator of women during the 19th century and so on. So there were many feminists during that period of time were influenced of Satanism. Or, But they, some of them, they said that, some scholars have mentioned that not all of them were esoteric uh, Satanists. So they were not all of them believing in Shaitan as a figure that they, that they worshipped. They used him as a symbol, uh, usually. So, but still, these kind of esoteric thoughts were spread out even amongst the secular movements during the 19th century. Mm -hmm. uh, during the 20th century, there's a very famous person called Aleister Crowley. Uh, he was an actually English guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was a Freemason, uh, and he, yeah. And he was also, he started his own esoteric religion uh, called Thelema. And uh, it was based on magic and, uh, and other esoteric, esoteric and occult things and so on. And he was very influential. He was even mentioned, I think, by uh, BBC that he was one of the most influential uh, Englishmen uh, ever. Uh, so he's like on, on the, the list. I think even details, they, they put his picture on one of their albums. Uh, oh, yes. They yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, the German Nazi party had uh, occult roots. Uh, and also, you can see uh, Heinrich Himmler. 
he was himself very indulged in these things. He used to have different occult and esoteric meetings in a palace in Germany. And uh, many of the things that, uh, that he was like, he was the SS leader, but at the same time, he used to have all of these esoteric uh, rituals and so on. And many others also from the Nazi party. Uh, yeah, so there are some specific books about the occult roots of the Nazi party. You can see that many of the symbols that they use and many of the things that they have are all can all be traced back to different uh, esoteric uh, uh, symbolism and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, after the Second World War, uh, the counterculture movement spread uh, during the 1960s, and they were against the establishment. And being against the establishment, one part was being against uh, religion. Uh, so uh, they, uh, the New Age movement became very popular amongst them uh, during the 60s, 70s, and so on. Uh, so many esoteric beliefs were spread uh, amongst these people. Then the, the, the word New Age um, became, uh, did not become so popular. So you will not see today usually the people that are indulged in these things that have these practices that they say that they are part of a New Age movement today. These things are really spread out. You can see them, uh, like on the internet. You can see them in, uh, like, uh, personal development books that they usually use. These kind of uh, ideas taken from from the New Age uh, thought and so on. So they are very spread out, but they don't usually use the word New Age anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, even neo paganism was spread uh, during the late 20th century uh, all around Europe. You have in the UK the Wicca and Druid movement, mm. and you have in uh, Eastern Europe, uh, like Slavic uh, neo-paganism, we have in Sweden, the Old Norse religions, uh, some kind of neo-paganism. And you can usually see that people that are uh, on the far right, uh, they are usually, again, they, they are usually, they have these kind of symbols from the neo-pagan, uh, or the, the, the old pagan religious uh, in Scandinavia and so on. Mm. Uh, and also satanic groups uh, started, they had the, the Church of Satan that started uh, in the 70s and so on. They never gained much popularity, but you can see uh, a lot of reference to the devil and shaitan uh, in Western culture. Yeah, in, in music. Uh, yeah, uh, if you go in here, of course, Wikipedia is not the best place to, to have the <laughs> resource, but if you go into Wikipedia and write devil in the arts and popular culture, you will see under all these things like music, classical music, popular music, film, television, film, television, animation, radio, literature, uh, video games, and so on, how many references there are to the devil uh, mm. in music, in film, and so on. It's not always that they, they, they praise the devil, there are some examples of uh, other than that, but in music, especially, they have this thing that they're saying that they have a deal with the devil, that they sold the soul to the devil, and so on. And these are things that they uh, they say during their, they have these lyrics uh, that are very satanic uh, in, in Western culture. You can even see in, in many films too, many series, uh, video games, and all these things. They have these occult things that are esoteric. Uh, things that get into video games and to, to music and to films and series and so on. And this is very interesting. And there, there's a specific subject that they study called a culture, uh, where they study this culture phenomena, uh, phenomena uh, in the West.
It's interesting that, that there's, even in the Muslim world, there's a certain Muslim country, I won't say where, where a Western singer went just a few weeks ago and the lyrics were, were quite well known about bowing down to worship the goddess and uh, and so on. And this is explicitly kind of pagan, um, satanic kind of rhetoric going on there, even even in a Muslim country, so I won't say which one, but it's infiltrating uh, through popular music now uh, in, in other parts of the world, not just the West. Yeah, you see, like even like famous music videos that they have, uh, speaking about how they sold the soul to the devil and how yeah. the devil coming into the music videos and so on. So, devil and esoteric thoughts are very spread out in in Western culture today. Uh, yeah, uh, this is another thing that I think is very interesting: uh, the esoteric tradition in Freemasonry. So the first gentleman uh, there is called Albert Pike. He got a book called Morals and Dogma. And he was the supreme commander of the Scottish Rite, which is uh, the biggest rite in, uh, in USA, uh, for about 20 or 30 years or something like that. So he was like the main boss during the 19th century for Freemasonry in the States. Uh, 33 degree uh, Freemason and he wrote this book Morals and Dogma and this book is uh, you can download it as a PDF and you can uh, read it and it's full of esoteric and occult things and this is how he explained the different levels that they have the different degrees that they have in uh, in Freemasonry so if mm -hmm. someone wants to get uh, like an insight in how they understand their rituals uh, it can go back to the book Morals of Dogma. It's very hard to understand because usually esoteric li literature, if you don't, if you're not, uh, you don't really understand the different uh, uh, the wordings that they're using or the thoughts that they have. It's quite hard to understand. But someone as Albert uh, as Albert Pike had this uh, huge influence amongst the Freemasons that he wrote this book with the esoteric thought. It can show it shows us that. The esoteric tradition is widespread in uh, amongst Freemasons, uh, especially the, the, the Scottish Rite. The other person uh, called Manly Hall, uh, he got a book called The Secret Teachings of All Ages. It was very influential too amongst the uh, Freemasons. Uh, his books are very esoteric too. And he even, in one of the books that I read from him, he mentioned that uh, the, the religion of Freemasonry. So he, he mentioned that it's an own religion. Uh, wow. And he got all of these different, uh, he takes like uh, teachings from different religions, and especially he's talking about the Hermeticism and, uh, uh, and uh, Neoplatonist uh, thoughts and all these things from old Egypt uh, time. And he uh, put them together in uh, this book, Secret Teaching of All Ages, and other books that he wrote too. And uh, the third person is uh, King Charles the Thirteenth of Sweden, oh. uh, who established the Swedish uh, or formed the Swedish Rite that we have in Sweden and Denmark and Norway and Iceland. And uh, uh, like I said, when I spoke to to my teacher, he said that his thoughts were even more esoteric than other rites that they have in in Freemasonry. So you have this esoteric tradition in Freemasonry. It's very hard to, to know exactly what they believe in, exactly what they do, uh, what their rituals uh, mm. consist of. But mm. there are books that you can read, and there are also academic research about them so you can understand more what they believe and what uh, they do. 
And here is something that is very, very interesting. You have these esoteric thoughts. And I don't know uh, if it's so clear, but... Uh, let's see if I can make it bigger here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they have this initial right when you join the Freemasons. And this is taken from themselves, what they say. So they say that they have to obey without hesitation any order whatsoever it may be of Masonic superiors to assist a companion royal archmason when he is engaged in any difficulty and espouses cause so far as to extricate him from the same, whether he is right or wrong. Mm -hmm. And then they say, they give this oath that if they would uh, uh, reveal any of the secrets that he would have his throat cut from ear to ear, his tongue torn out by the roots, and his body buried in the rough sand of the sea at the lower water mark when the tide flows twice in the same 24 hours. <laughs> a very exquisite thing, isn't it? I mean, it's a really, yeah. and you wonder, you know, if he's uh, what the point of all that is. I think it's it's very theatrical, isn't it? it it's kind of yeah. very. I, I think it's, I, it's hard to take this seriously, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but still, uh, you say these things, and you say that you have to obey your Masonic superior yeah. uh, and so on, and to have his skull severed in two and divided to the north and the south and his bowel burned to ashes in the midst and scattered in the four winds and heavens and his skull broke and so on. And they say these things. So yeah. this is what I want to come to. They, 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 this, these are societies that they have esoteric mm -hmm. thoughts and they give this uh, <laughs> like uh, well, oath of allegiance to, to their Masonic leaders and then at the same time, you see, okay, who are famous Freemasons in the Western world? You see George Washington, you see Benjamin Franklin, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Andrew Jackson, Harry Truman, Mozart, uh, Andrew Johnson, uh, Mark Twain, Winston Churchill, Henry Ford, uh, yeah, Gerald Ford and so on. So many American presidents, uh, famous people in, in culture, famous writers, uh, politicians, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who actually like more or less controlled uh, American politicians uh, during uh, much yeah. of the 20th the century. Yeah. And they are in these societies and everything is so secret and esoteric and they swear these oaths and so on. So I can't help thinking, if I may, just comment on this. The two names there that strike me. The Reverend Jesse Jackson, the famous civil rights leader, um, who's still with us, I think, and Henry Ford. And uh, Henry Ford, of course, was uh, 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 an open anti-Semite. He, he supported the Nazi Party. Hitler awarded him some medals. He was a well-known National Socialist sympathizer. So uh, I'm just wondering, in the hierarchy of the Freemasons, um, the relative, uh, because I, I, perhaps their lives didn't quite overlap, but it'd be interesting if Jesse Jackson would have been higher in the hierarchy in the Henry Ford and it had to have obeyed uh, a black man, you know, a, a Nazi obeying a black man. That would have been uh, ironic, to put it mildly. But uh, it's a very eclectic, diverse bunch of people, uh, actually. Um, Winston Churchill, how extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but the thing is, like, I, I think th this is one of the main reasons why so many conspiracy theories are made uh, about the Freemasons and other secret societies and so on, because people see, okay, there are many famous people here. They are indulging in rituals that are very shady 
uh, esoteric. We don't know about them, what they're doing, what they're saying, where they're joining one another and so on. And at the same time, they are, uh, uh, yeah, like I said, they're, they're secretive and they give this oath to the leaders and so on. So if you, would, if you have an open, democratic, liberal society and at the same time you have these things going on, it's very hard to kind of <laughs> join these things together, to, to be honest. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think, is there only one person from that long list who's still alive today? Buzz, uh, uh, Buzz Orwin, the, um, the American um, astronaut, second on the moon, Buzz uh, Aldrin, rather. No, this is, is just the, some, six million Freemasons in the world. About no, I'm just wondering, uh, no, I, I'm just saying, uh, I wonder what the, the, the those who are alive now, who, who are the famous Freemasons in the Western world who, who still exist. In Sweden, we have the foreign minister, we have the speaker, spokesman of uh, the parliament, and so on. So we have many like oh, famous, really? high-ranked politicians. In, in, oh, I see, in I don't know. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. So th this is quite interesting. Uh, this is the, the the fresco of the capital, uh, uni uh, United States Capitol, and this is what is called apotheosis of Washington. Yeah. And you know Apo what apotheosis? Yeah. Apotheosis means uh, it, it means when someone is exalted into heaven and become divine. It, it's a word yeah. sometimes used to describe the Christian view of Jesus, who became divine when he ascended into heaven. Yeah. And this is a part of the fresco of United States Capitol Hill. So this is like where the parliament is and so on. They have this fresco of him uh, making some kind of apotheosis, like he's becoming divine and so on. And That's this right. is also a part of their esoteric beliefs, that they're, mm -hmm. they're becoming divine with their esoteric thoughts and so on. And okay. it's quite interesting that they have these uh, things uh, in in, in these pictures and uh, these wow. spaces. Yeah, uh, so uh, this is what I think is very interesting. Mm. How the West presents itself. It's it's modern, it's rational, it's materialistic, it's egalitarian, it's democratic, and so on. This is like how they usually portray themselves and yeah. how many Muslims also in other parts of the world they think about, when they think about the West, this yeah. is how they think about them. Yeah. But you can see at the same time, the esoteric secret societies are based on tradition. So they they take this knowledge that is uh, from tradition, from, from master to master and so on, and it's uh, take it from them. And it's not based on rational thinking. It's very irrational, uh, to be honest, to have these uh, uh, rituals that they uh, go into to coffins and they go amongst the different skulls and they do this kind of uh, things that they, they're not part of uh, rational thinking and they have these occult elements in them too. They are hierarch hierarchical and excludes women too. So if you say that we have like uh, genitarian, it's uh, like women and men, they can have all the same rights. At the same time, you have these societies, you have these organizations that have a lot of influence and at the same time they exclude women so i i think this is also very interesting and they're mm -hmm. elitists and based on obedience so the lower one obeys the one who's over him and so on and so on to his masters and this is also like in a democratic society it's it's very uh, hard to see how you can join between these things at the same time indeed indeed absolutely uh yeah um so, 
what I think is very important with these things is that uh, some people, they ignore the existence of these secret esoteric societies, so they they don't care about them or they uh, even uh, deny that they exist or like that. And other people, they spread conspiracies. The pr problem with conspiracy theories is that they're usually not based on uh, knowledge. So they might have like some sense of knowledge you have they have one, two, three, and then they jump from there to 45. So there's like a big gap between the things that they have, the knowledge that they have, and what they are talking about. And usually when you can see that people speak about esotericism, the occult, and the secret societies and so on, on YouTube and uh, like in some popular books and so on, it's usually based on these conspiracies. It's not knowledge-based. And the study of esotericism has been ignored in the academia for a very long period of time, too. So if you would go back 30, 40 years ago, you would not find academic books and research and articles about these organizations. But today, you have these academic books that go back to resources, that go back to uh, first-hand sources, and they go back to the books of these organizations and so on. And they and also the some of the esoteric books are available. So you can find them on the net and you can buy them on a Amazon and so on. Uh, maybe like 45, 50 years ago, someone who was not in these organizations would not get his hand on these books. But today it's possible to, to read the books and to, to get more understanding of their thought and what they're all about and so on. So I think this is very important that we as Muslims or people, uh, human beings uh, generally, when you speak about anything, even if it's people that you don't agree with, you should speak with knowledge. You should mm -hmm. not speak just about what you think it might be and so yeah. on. So if you say something, yeah, if you say something, okay, they believe in this and this and that. Okay, what's your evidence for that? What, what do you base it on? Yo, they said in, uh, Albert Pike said in Morals and Dogma, one, two, three, okay, now we have an evidence. But just saying things and ascribing things to people, it's not from uh, Islamic manners, uh, even if it's people that you don't agree with. And it's the same thing with other religions. Where, like Muslims can't speak about Christians and uh, Jews and Hindus and so on without, uh, without knowledge, uh, without evidence, what they say. Mm, this is the extremely yeah. important point, I must say. Very good point. Yeah, so this is uh, also one of the things that I, I wanted to reach with, with this presentation, to the, the importance that if you want to learn about these things, learn from real uh, resources. Don't like look at TikTok videos about things or uh, YouTube uh, celebrities uh, and so on. Try to really gain real knowledge. Or if you don't, it's better to just leave it and don't speak about it. So, yeah, these are some of the books that have been written about the subject. Uh, the, the, the first scholar uh, in the West that was famous to, to write books about the subject uh, was uh, a French scholar called Anthony Fibre. I don't know how to pronounce uh, French names, but yeah. Uh, he wrote many books. Uh, he got a chair of uh, studying uh, esoteric thought at the uh, University of Sorbonne. And this is one of his books, Western Esotericism, A Concise History. And he got many other books too. And there's another scholar called Walter Hanegraaf. He's from Holland, Netherlands. 
He got many books about the subject too. One of them is a short book, uh, about 200 pages, called Western Esotericism, A Guide for the Perplexed. Uh, Walter Hanegraaff and also uh, Antoine Ferret and other scholars, they wrote a dictionary of Gnosis and Western Esotericism. I think it's about eight to 900 pages. It's a, it's a big book wow. and that explains all of the uh, the words that they're using and uh, vocabulary and so on because it can be very hard to, to understand. So if someone would just order uh, Morals and Dogma of uh, Albert Pike and try to read it straight away, he would probably not understand so much. So this is a book that can help you to understand the kind of uh, terminology that they're using in, mm. uh, yeah, in Western esotericism. They also got a journal uh, uh, called Arias with peer-reviewed articles about Western esotericism uh, with many different scholars from different universities that write articles about that. And this is also a book called Handbook of Freemasonry uh, by Hendrik Bogdan, who was the teacher that I studied with. Uh, it's about six or 700 pages with wow. different scholars who wrote a book about Freemasonry, about Freemasonry in different countries. Six to 700 pages on Freemasonry. I mean, that just shows there's a massive subject and there's that much material to cover in a, a big volume like that. Extraordinary. So, yeah, yeah this, this is what I want, I want to read. Like, if someone wants to speak about the subject, okay, learn. Uh, learn what it's really all about. Don't just speak about these things. Don't just make uh, a YouTube video mm. so you can get a, a lot of uh, people looking at it and so on. Because uh, these are serious. Well, listen, also, listen, it's not theology and it's you giving the lecture, in which case they must watch a YouTube video if, if you're giving the lecture about it on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's fun. Uh, yeah, so these are some of the books. There are many, many books and articles about the subject, and they can be downloaded, some of the uh, PDFs. Oh, really? And you can also buy them from Amazon and so on. So if someone wants to learn more, you can go back to these books and learn more about the subject. The last mm. thing that I want to speak about uh, before yeah. ending is the Islamic rulings on esotericism and cultism. Uh, so many of the things that they're uh, doing, uh, like sihr, magic, is uh, the ruling in Islam is that it's kufr and shirk. Because you can't make sihr uh, or sorcery without getting connected to, uh, to have contact with jinn. So they're calling upon jinn and they're usually making different kinds of kufr to get closer to them so they can get uh, the things that they want. So uh, this is uh, to to learn about, even to learn about magic, how to do it, how to get in contact with the jinn, is a form of, of kufr that the scholars have mentioned. So it's it's a very, very serious thing. Uh, divination, kahana, uh, that you try to know uh, the future uh, by looking in... Uh, like a lamp or looking at different things or to go to uh, some persons that they say that they know the future and so on. This is also a form of kufr. The Prophet ﷺ mentioned the two different situations that if a person goes to a person that claims to know the future and he believes that he said, then he made kufr. So he left the religion of Islam. If he believes that this specific person knows the future. He knows al-ghayb, what will happen in the future. And if he just goes to him just to 
uh, ask him, and he does not really believe that he said, the Prophet said that his prayer will not be accepted for 40 days. Wow. And this is very dangerous because you can see that some Muslims, they are looking at these TV shows uh, or that they are uh, reading paper, new newspapers that have this kind of uh, uh, divination uh, articles and so on. And they believe in them or they do not believe in them. They just uh, read them uh, for fun. And uh, then this is very, very serious in, uh, in Islam. Mm. The same thing with astrology. And this is very, very popular. And now divination, they have these tarot cards and they have, they, it comes in different ways. And uh, uh, it's spread out uh, uh, like in the Muslim world in, in some ways and in the Western world in other ways and so on. But it all comes back to people that claim that they know the future based on that they are either that they're just lying or that they have contact with the jinn in different ways. Same thing with astrology too. Uh, if someone believes that uh, the stars, they can affect what will happen on earth by themselves. So if someone is born in the scorpion or something like that, it, this and this and this and that will happen to him. And mm -hmm. this is because of the stars themselves then this is a big form of kufr in Islam. And if the person think, believes that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made this as a sabab, uh, uh, a reason that this will happen, then this is a lesser form of kufr. But it's still very, very serious to, to, to believe in these things or read uh, like astrological papers and so on. Because you can mm -hmm. see like in many... Many newspapers in the West today, especially like uh, the, the newspapers that try to sell as much as possible, not really serious and so on, they usually have these astrological articles or so on. They're very, very common in yeah. newspapers today in, in the West. Yeah, very true. Also, talismans, different uh, tamima that they have, uh, they're very common in, in the Muslim world, but usually in the, in the New Age movement and so on, they have these different talismans that they wear uh, or that they have in their houses and so on. And the Prophet Sallallahu spoke about that too, that man ta'allaqa tamima tan faqad kafar. That if someone wears a tamima, then this is a form of kufr. So this yeah. is also very, very serious in Islam. Uh, yeah, uh, spiritualism, uh, getting in contact with the dead, uh, asking them for help, uh, and usually the, the, the ones that they communicate with are usually some kind of jinn or, or like that. Uh, this can also be uh, a form of, of, of kufr uh, or shirk, that they start to ask them for specific things, that they make different rituals to them and so on. So they fall into to kufr or to shirk, or that they make dua to someone else than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This can also be uh, shirk. When it comes to joining these esoteric societies, uh, especially uh, if someone knows what, what they're all about, and they have these esoteric teachings that goes against Islam, this is something that scholars have been talking about too. And they say that it's uh, not allowed for a Muslim to do that uh, in any ways. So for a Muslim to join uh, these uh, societies, secret societies and so on, uh, it's not allowed. And usually 
uh, when they uh, get involved in these things, they will have to do something that is uh, totally contrary to, to, to Islam. Mm. But at the same time, you can see like there are some books that have been written about Freemasonry in the Islamic world. And it was really, really uh, spread out in, in the Islamic world, uh, especially when the French, they came to Egypt. One of the first things that they made when Napoleon and his generals, many of the generals with Napoleon, they were Freemasons. So they established uh, these uh, uh, lodges in, 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 in uh, Egypt. And uh, some Muslims, they joined these organizations in, uh, in lodges in, in Egypt. So you can see that many of the kings in, uh, in Egypt during the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, they, they were Freemasons. The mm. same things with, uh, in Syria and Lebanon and uh, Turkey and so on. Uh, Freemasonry was very widespread uh, in these countries. And the scholars have mentioned that uh, joining these organizations is not allowed and it can also lead a person to, to do things that are totally contrary to Islam. Mm. Yeah, so this is uh, some... Uh, uh, summary of uh, this important subject. Uh, it's a lot of things that you can speak about. I was just, uh, I was thinking a lot about what to bring up and not to bring up. So if I want to speak about everything, it will be too long. But this is kind of a summary about the subject, so you can get some uh, yeah, uh, summarized ver version about it. If someone wants to read more, there are many books they can go back to and start mm. down I think the, the, the one question I have really, as I say, a complete novice to this really, is you've spoken about the, these esoteric societies like the Freemasons, the Illuminati and so on, is is the extent of their actual power and influence in practice in in our world. Uh, but, but because they are esoteric by definition, you know, we can't, you know, look at them. They're secretive. So, but then you, you've listed all these very powerful people who think it worth their while in their busy lives where it matters really what they bother to get involved in. Why would they bother getting involved in, all, in, in say, the Freemasons if it was just a joke, if it was, you know, just a, a pantomime where people dressed up in funny clothes and did funny rituals with coffins and whatever, like, like you said. So that suggests that there is a point to joining it. So that raises the question... Well, how efficacious is it? What is the purpose? Why do powerful people join these organizations, particularly the Freemasons? Because that seems to be the one that gets mentioned here. Yeah, um, yeah, it's the one that I mentioned. So, others, yeah. so uh, what's your view on that? Are, are we dealing with a, a, a behind-the-scenes occult uh, influence here that is parallel to, it seems to be what you're saying, runs parallel to the official... Uh, you know, constitution, rules, regulations, processes of a, a democratic liberal polity. Are, are we dealing with a, a kind of a twin track reality here? Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, I think so. And I think people are joining the organizations like they have six million, uh, six, six million members and they have many other organizations, too. So Sweden, wow. which is a famous country for being this open liberal country, it's the mm. country with most people per capita uh, in secret societies and secret wow. organizations. And Freemasons is just one of them. So you have another organization called Old Fellow. So you have Templar Order. It's an, uh, it's an organization with the same name of Knights Templars. And you have many other organizations too that are secretive and they are even bigger than the Freemasons. So this is just wow. one of the examples that I mentioned. So we can see like Winston Churchill, he was with the Freemasons and the Old Fellows at the same time. And the old fellows in Sweden, I think they have about 40,000 members, and Freemasons, I think they have 15,000. So 
it's it's very it's very hard to understand exactly why people join. I think there are different reasons for that. Some people they join, uh, they say that they have some kind of spiritual uh, journey or that they uh, self development and so on. This is something that they can mm. gain from that. It might be these kind of reasons. Uh, there might be other reasons too uh, to get connections and uh, <clears throat> with the business and the political life and, and workplaces and so on. Uh, it was uh, uh, there have been like different. Um, like the media have been reading, reading about, uh, writing about these subjects in, in the UK uh, and in Sweden about uh, like how the uh, many police officers and uh, judges mm. and uh, uh, like lawyers and so on have been Freemasons. It was like just a couple of months ago in Sweden that they mentioned that like in some cases. Uh, I think it was like the judge and the attorney and the and the lawyer and all of them at the same time. They're all Freemasons. So this became Ooh. they become just yeah yeah, yeah. sometimes. Well, the uh, questions are compromising the integrity of the legal process if behind the scenes people are all on the, in the same organisation that's not disclosed and what's really going on there. People are this is, this is suspicious, doesn't it? I mean, the, the question yeah, I've got for you. I mean, who is is there a worldwide head of say the Freemasons? Is there a Mister Freemason? That has a no. name and an address. Officially not. Officially not, because they have different rights. So you have the Swedish right, and they have the the, the master mason in the Swedish right, and then you have the the Scottish right, uh, and you have the York right, and you have different rights. So you have in the UK they have. Uh, I think it's uh, it's from the royal family. Uh, I don't know exactly. Who it is. It's oh, been really? the, the, yeah, it's been the, the the master mason for about fifty years. Is it the Duke of Kent? I think isn't it? Yeah, Duke of Kent. Duke yeah, yeah. So he's so okay. There are leaders, but they're they're, they're really regional leaders rather than a single global leader. Because there is not one Freemason. There are Freemasonry, right. so different Freemasons. But what I understood is that they have contact between one another, but they are not just one. Uh, yeah. So they're kind of they, relative. They have, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. But I I can say that I'm like an, I have some knowledge. I'm re reading a lot about it, but. Uh, it's like you, you saw, like the, the books, the, a lot of literature and articles and so on about the subject. So it's much more that you can learn about the subject uh, and so on. And like I said, there are other societies too, other esoteric groups too. So it's a, it's a very imp interesting subject. And I think that uh, more people, especially if they're in, uh, involved in Dawa and so on, should have some knowledge about this because this is a way of understanding uh, the Western society today. Because it's a big part of it. Yeah, there's the the the, the outward present, presenting of the West uh, image it wants to project, as you say, of liberal, rational, open, and uh, and uh, but on the other hand, behind the scenes, there are these uh, uh, apparently you know very well uh, attended organisations, esoteric, uh, hidden with agendas. Who knows what they're, they're up to? So this is quite quite disturbing, of course. Um, and of course, from a Muslim point of view uh, as well, these aren't just human organizations. They may well be in contact with occult powers, uh, with jinn uh, and, and shaitan, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Um, so that they present, you know, there could be uh, unseen influences they bring to bear through these individuals, through these organizations to uh, on the societies around us. So there's that kind of spiritual dimension, uh, the unseen, which is very real. Obviously, the Quran talks about it uh, very, very extensively. This is very real. And so I think I think it's very what you've done here today. Thank you for it. It's very salutary, very helpful in just to give you a more complete picture 
of uh, an, another side of the West, uh, what's actually going on. Uh, and so we should be less um, perhaps naive about the uh, occult powers that may be at work uh, within our societies. And Shaitan himself, the Quran says, is an avowed enemy of mankind. So one can assume that he is at work in, you know, uh, in, in a hidden way, perhaps, in our societies, particularly in the West. Yeah, and like you say, like, like we talked about, like in the music industry, like the things that are really influencing people at a day-to-day -day level, that they have all these satanic and occult uh, things. Um, it's quite scary, to, to, to be honest. Like they're really, like people that might not be so like interested in uh, reading and like philosophic, uh, philosophical books and religious books and so on, they can get affected in, in other ways of these occult and uh, satanic elements through films, through music, through video games and so on. So this is something that is really real uh, in our culture today and people are affected of it. So, yeah, mm. I, I think it's something that we should study more and to get more knowledge about. Yeah, another eminent scholar, uh, Islamic scholar, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf from Zaytuna College, of course, has written uh, a lot about this. And there's some interesting YouTube videos uh, and le of lectures, talks that he's given, which discuss all of this in great detail. And he talks about uh, very influential 20th century figures who are behind very important discoveries, uh, you know, rocket science and so on, who were avowed Satanists. Uh, this is not us calling them that that's what they call themselves uh, and uh, it really is quite shocking when you realize some of these uh, uh people were, were were satanists and so Hamza Yusuf has done a lot of work uh, educating muslims i think on this as well yeah okay well thank you uh, very much uh dr abdullah Sui. as always fantastic uh to see you and uh i hope this uh, your presentation will help uh, many people to as you say do dawah more effectively more knowledgeably to understand what's really going on in the West and also to check themselves to make sure they don't get influenced by these, uh, you know, occult influences. So thank you very much indeed. Until next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.